You're listening to Crossroads International Church Podcast. Welcome. We hope this podcast will bless you from wherever you're listening to it. For more information, go to our website at xrgs.nl. Now, let's get into the podcast. Good morning, people of God. Beloved people of God. And of course, also all of you, those of you watching online, welcome to my name's Anton Stokes, and I'm a member of the preaching team here at Crossroads. We're in a series on missions. It's a word that we hear a lot, and we use a lot, often about other people in other places, far away from our own daily lives. But it's something that we, need, we can't always delegate to others. So this summer, as is our sort of tradition here at Crossroads, We're taking a couple of weeks to look again at God's mission and what that means for us. We're doing this by looking at stories in the book of Acts, in which people come to know Jesus. But we're also doing it by talking to some of our own missionaries, people who are serving in God's mission. We've got an interview for you this morning, and as I was preparing for this interview, I was reminded that God's mission in the world has always preceded from generation to generation, through telling and teaching by those who have already believed. In Deuteronomy 6, 6, we read, God gives this instruction to Moses. And these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Over the years here at Crossroads, this has been particularly close to my heart. So it's a great joy for me today to welcome one of our own younger generation, Kim Van Balen, to talk about how she's participating in God's mission. Kim's back from a summer break in Norway. She's working with the organization YWAM. Welcome, Kim. So, Kim, tell us a little bit about YWAM, what they do, and where you're based. How does that look like? Yes. Tusen tak. Ansker du velkom aan mij hier. Jij hart Kim. Jij heet er Kim. So that's my Norwegian so far. Um, <laughs> um, I'm a missionary in Norway, uh, Norway Wogerland. So that's the south of Norway. And I'm a missionary with Youth with a Mission. And their vision is to know God, to build a relationship with Him, and to follow your own calling, and to follow the great calling that we all have to make disciples of all nations. Mm-hmm. Great. So tell me, what is it? That's sort of God's mission, but what's your part in that? What does a day-to-day Kim's life look like at YWAM in Norway? Yes. Um, So, uh, Youth of the Mission starts always with the Discipleship Training School, and I'm actually part of one of the secondary schools, and that's the Bible Department. It's uh, called the BCC, and the BCC is all about uh, studying the Bible, reading the Bible, and getting to know more of God's heart for us. Um, And I'm part of of what I'm doing, actually, is um, walking with the students, um, helping them to build a relationship um, with God, coaching them, and also uh, grading their 
uh, their work and everything that they're studying. So also coaching them. Um, and that's uh, it's really a privilege to work with them. Great. So that's sort of what doing God's mission looks like for you. If you look back over the past year, what's really struck you? Have you had a sense God's working in it? Mm-hmm. What's really struck you about that? Um, it's really cool to see... Um, like everyone on the base has done uh, a Bible core course, and also the students after they have finished the school, um, they, their life is built on biblical principles. And um, to see that is really a blessing to to walk with them and to see like how their faith has grown, um, what they do understand of um, how love or forgiveness is described in the Bible, and to see how they build their faith on that. Um, it's really cool to um, just be a part of their process and part of their their growth uh, towards God. Wonderful. So what's, what's made you particularly joyful this past year? What is it that uh, you're really thankful for? Um, what I've been really thankful for is uh, just be with uh, these students, be with these people, and see how, how God is working, um, how God is working through them. Um, just to see um, God's character through the Bible and through um, how we're studying it is uh, giving so much revelations. And also to, to see the, the students um, really knowing something, of learning something new about God, mm-hmm. it gives um, new revelations every time. Cool. So lastly, as a close off, what can we pray for you for? And Norway, is there anything unique about Norway that we can be remembering as we pray for you? Hmm. Um, I'm being really blessed with people walking uh, with me, supporting me uh, in prayer and financially. Um, and um, so that's really a, prayer, uh, a praise point. Mm-hmm. Um, a prayer point will be also um, for people in Norway to walk with me closely and mm-hmm. to um, also pray for me in uh, times when it's maybe harder um, to really trust God that everything um, yeah, will, be, will be all right. Um, and in Norway, um, our base is actually growing. So that's uh, mm-hmm. really thank, uh, thank God for that. Um, but also to just uh, have his providence for maybe a bigger building or more buildings mm-hmm. um, to really um, do what he has uh, mm-hmm. called us to do. And in Norway, uh, we have a big focus on Generation C. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we call the teenagers. And the teenagers, we really see that they have a heart for God. And we want to pray for them to really obey God and to really follow, um, follow their calling and the calling that God has for their lives. Super. Good. Can I pray those things for you, Thank you. on behalf yes. of all of us? Yes. Father, thank you for Kim. Thank you for the family that's nurtured her faith. Thank you for the faith that you've given her, and thank you for the work you've given her to do. Thank you for the joy she gets out of helping these other young people. And we pray for them. We pray, Holy Spirit, guard their hearts. Watch over them. We pray, guard Kim's heart, too in those times where things don't go so well. When 
we fall back on our own doubts and our own fears, I pray that you will encourage her as you are, as Paul's taught us in the series on the Holy Spirit, that you will be her encourager, that you will remind her of your presence with her and your work with her. And we pray for Norway. We pray for the YWAM base there. We're thankful that it's a place where people can come and are learning to know you better. And we pray that you will bless that as they need facilities that you will provide. And that you'll give them the faith and trust to do that. Go with Kim, go with her family and bless her. Remind her that she's your beloved. That you call that out in her. And that you've blessed her to call that out in others. Because we ask these things in the name of your son Jesus. And by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, Kim. So you've got another Southern African voice on stage. I know it's been a couple of weeks, but I'm not a South African. That's Sean and Stepan's privilege. I'm actually from Zimbabwe. Over the next two weeks, we're continuing our series. We'll be looking at mission stories involving Philip, who was one of the deacons in the very first church in Jerusalem. We read about Philip in the first, first in the book of Acts in chapter 6. Not for his great learning skills, not for his great teaching skills, but because of his heart. His willingness to serve the needs of the growing community of believers in Jerusalem. He was chosen, it says in Acts 6, chapter 3, because he was a man of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom. In our story today, we find Philip in Samaria. Because he was fleeing for his life from persecution by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans were considered traitors and idolaters by the tribe of Judah, the Jews who lived in Jerusalem. There's no love lost between them. But when Philip arrives there, he carries in his heart a message of hope that he cannot keep to himself. We pick up the story in the book of Acts, chapter 8, Verses 4 to 25. Much of the impact of the story is in Luke's storytelling. Luke, the author. So I want to read the whole of it together. It's a long passage. So bear with me and listen closely. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip 
as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued. And the word there I do want to point out means he sort of stuck to, he stuck to Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that I may lay my hands on people, that they may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain God's gift with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, that if possible, the intent of your hearts may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Can we pray over the word of God? Lord God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. As we spend time with your word, we pray, Holy Spirit, bring us a living message from your written word. As we've learned, Holy Spirit, show us Jesus. Convict us of his beauty and equip us to be like him. Jesus, we pray this in your name because we know it's your will. And we pray it through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Signs of power and glory. That's what struck me as appropriate title for this text and for this sermon as I studied it. It's a story full of signs of power and ambition for glory. There's a lot going on here with Philip, Simon, Peter, John, the Holy Spirit all taking part in the action. And to make sense of some of the people and places, I'm going to refer to quite a lot of biblical history. So for those of you who like to, keep your Bibles open. They will be up on the screen behind me, and I will be giving chapter and verse as we go. You might want to follow. I want to start by looking at where the action takes place. 
because Luke deliberately draws our attention to it. He does this by explicitly naming the location of the events in Samaria three times. At bookends, at the beginning, at verse 5, at the end, in verse 25, and in the middle, when Peter and John come down, in verse 14. Luke wants us to recognize that Samaria was a point on the trajectory that Jesus foretold when he spoke to the apostles about his mission right at the beginning of the book of Acts. In Acts 1, chapter 8, Jesus says to the disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Luke's original audience would have known that Samaria was the land now occupied by the tribes of Israel who had rejected the rule of David's descendants and followed the wicked king Jeroboam. You can read about it in 1 Kings, in chapter 11 and 12. The Samaritans were anticipating a future king. The prophets had foretold he would come to reunite the tribes with Judah, their tribes with Judah, and include all nations under God's rule, under a descendant king from David's line. Isaiah 46 verse 9 says of this king, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for all the nations. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You can see Jesus actually knew his scripture. And here's Philip through unexpected circumstances. Telling them how that very plan is being accomplished through Jesus. Why does that matter? Well, we come back to the Samaritans' expectations later. But Luke's main point here is to reassure us. Right from the beginning, God's had a plan. And power over history that's not disturbed by human circumstances. But we should not miss that exactly the same three places where Luke points us to God's working out his plan for Samaria... He also includes participation in preaching and proclaiming about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. We have a part to play in his mission. And the longer we spend looking at this story, the more questions it raises about what that is. What about the amazing signs? Three times we read that the people of Amaria, Samaria paid attention. Four times we read that it was because they were amazed by both Philip and Simon. In the end, the Samaritans believed Philip's message of good news, and they turned away from Simon, even though they were equally amazed at Simon's magic. Why? And Simon's journey to understand the good news is far from smooth or obvious. Why, after believing... And being baptized, but Peter pronounced that he's still cursed. Peter uses very strong language to the effect of saying to Simon, to hell with you and your money. You have no part or share in God's kingdom. And at the climax of the story, Luke leaves Simon's final response deliberately open-ended. What happened next? 
Is Simon's request to Peter to pray for him a genuine sign of new humility? Or is he just turning to another magician more powerful than himself? Out of fear for his life and hope for his favor? Lots of questions. And I think Luke leaves Simon's story deliberately open to point these questions back to us. So let's start with Simon. It's easy to write him off. Like we do when we recognize the villain in a movie. He's the bad guy. And we are not like that. But Simon's not that different from us. Like the Samaritans, he's seeking fullness of life. Control over his circumstances. Meaningful action in the world. He desires acceptance. Affirmation. Admiration. But as the story unfolds, we see that he seeks it in the wrong places and with the wrong understanding of himself and of what he truly needs. Peter tells Simon that what he truly needs is to repent of a bitterness that has captured his heart. And that happens after Simon has already professed belief and after he's been baptized. It seems that those things don't exempt him or us from a need to repent. That command to repent stands out as the crux on which the whole story turns. So I want to zoom in for the rest of the time that we have on that. Because I think that in Simon's need for repentance, we find some of the answers to all these questions that we also need for ourselves. What is repentance? It's become an ugly, old-fashioned word in a world that places great value on self-respect, human dignity, and it's suspicious of self-criticism. But it stands clearly in God's word as necessary for us. So we'd better understand why it's part of the good news about Jesus. The Greek word literally means to have a change of mind or a change of heart, to change our total moral inner attitude. We find an equivalent idea running through all of the Old Testament with a sense of turning around, changing direction, or returning to something we've left behind. The prophet Joel expresses it this way. In Joel chapter 2, verse 1, we read, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And the prophet Zechariah puts it this way in also verse 1, chapter 3. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The overall idea is turning around the way we think and act from having ourselves at the center of our universe to placing God and His way and His authority at the center of His universe. It's not only God's call to us, it's also His mission to bring us back to Him. We heard in the sermon series that Paul taught on the work of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit of God convicts us 
John 16, 8 says, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Wherever we are in our journey towards or away from God, His Spirit works in each of one of us to bring about this repentance. Not to make us wallow in bad feelings about ourselves. Feeling sinful, feeling guilty, feeling shameful. And it's not a one-off event that takes care of everything. Repentance is a new attitude of heart. One that's continually hearing and turning back to the God who has already turned to us in Jesus. It's an attitude that acknowledges our condition of sinfulness and guilt and unrighteousness and our need of God's love and forgiveness and His power for new fruitfulness. So I want to look at three things that needed to be turned around in Simon's heart and mind to see and receive what Philip proclaimed as good news. They were crucial for Simon. And they're crucial for us. We need to turn from myself, stop playing with magic, and pay attention to the message. Turn from myself, stop playing with magic, and pay attention to the message. There we go. Turn from myself. Simon was at the center of his own universe. He believed that he himself was somebody great. And he believed he would find purpose and fulfillment in lifting himself as high as possible in the world. For Simon, greatness lay in his superior power over others, in his own self-sufficiency, in greatness by his own means, in being a self-made man. When he sees that Philip's God is more powerful than the source of his own power, he changes allegiance because he sees a new opportunity for greater personal glory. He thinks that the Holy Spirit and the name of Jesus are just another power tool for his own ends. Simon's sense of purpose for his life was built on acquiring and using power for his own glory. Peter tells Simon that this is living in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. It's a strange expression. But he's using a picture that we find in Scripture of poisonous desires rooted in our hearts that give rise to poisonous fruit in our actions. Because such ambitions for glory and pride in our own superior achievements alienate us from one another. Works by comparing and competing with each other for glory. It makes some small so others of us can be great. Like Simon, don't we too all at times think to power that makes us more glorious than others? With all the bitterness that brings to them and to us. Simon points us to our own need to repent from this bond of iniquity that keeps our hearts captive. We see something of what that kind of change might look like when we look at Philip. He was not greedy for glory for himself. He claimed no power in himself, and his purpose was not for himself. Yet he still strikes us as a man with a deep sense of hope and purpose. 
Philip depended on God to do the works of power by faith and for God's purpose, not for his own advantage. The purpose was to point towards the source, a source in whom he'd already found hope and joy. Philip's works of power brought healing and great joy. That's why what Philip did is called signs, very consistently. They pointed to the goodness and greatness of God, a God whose mission to restore wholeness to a suffering world. But if Philip asked God for signs of his glory by faith, the text very clear that Simon used his supernatural powers for magic. And that's the next thing we need to turn from. We need to stop playing with magic. Magic manipulates the world for our own purposes, under our own control. Simon thought that he would find acceptance and admiration and fulfillment he desired in power to change his circumstances, to do great things. And it distracted him from the greater and more urgent problem that was within himself. His outward focus stopped him from recognizing that what he actually needed most was a change of heart. To be accepted apart from his achievements. We all struggle with this. Especially in a world of technical mastery, which gives us so much control over our circumstances. And a culture that places so much value on individual performance and possessions. Our kind of magic may not be to reach for supernatural power like Simon did. Though sometimes maybe we do. But don't we often reach for our own personal power and our technological mastery in similar ways? Simon's story helps us to see that power to fix our circumstances and earn admiration will not solve the real hunger in our hearts. It's an endless road of insecurity, and we need a change of heart and mind to admit it, and a reason for hope that we can be set free from it. So what should have convinced Simon that turning away from his own glory was good news? Philip did signs. If Simon had not been preoccupied with power and glory of magic, he would have looked more carefully at what the signs pointed to. Because what was the whole point, if you'll excuse my pun, of why Philip also proclaimed good news. You see, I might know that you are happy because I see the sign that you are smiling. But I don't know why you're happy unless you tell me that you just won the lottery. And it's not good news to me unless you tell me how I have a share in the winnings. For something to be good news, we need to hear it and understand it in order to know what it means for us. In short, Simon needed to pay attention to the message. Because the message that Philip proclaimed that Simon needed to hear more than anything else so he could be freed from his need for power and glory 
and from his fear of his judgment of his performance was the message of God's gracious love. John, in his first letter in verse, chapter 4 and verse 18, he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected by love. We love because he first loved us. So how would the Samaritans and Simon have understood that from what Philip said? Well, as we saw before, they already had a hope for a king from the line of David who would bring them back under God's rule. So when Philip says kingdom of God, they knew what he meant. It was that kingdom. And when Philip talked about the Christ, they understood that too. That was the Greek word for Messiah. And we remember Paul telling us what that means. That means the anointed one. And it was especially and only used for the anointed king from David's line. So they understood that Philip was talking about that king and that he was coming and that, that was good news. But what had taken a lot of explaining was connecting the Christ to the name of Jesus. Because the Samaritans would also have known that Jesus was the guy who recently died on a Roman cross. That meant, if you want to paraphrase, what Philip was actually telling them was, God's long-awaited kingdom has been established under a crucified king. How on earth, they might have asked him, is a dead king good news? Philip's powerful signs convinced them to believe his message about Jesus. That God, that Jesus was God and man in one person and was brought back to life by God's power. But still I imagine there must have been a lot of explaining about what, how that is good news. It might have gone something like this. Why a dead king? Well, he died for the love of his people. He died to his right to judge our sinful condition. So that he can embrace us with his love. And why a resurrected king? They might have asked. Well, by his resurrection, he demonstrates his power and will to fix a broken world and heal our heart condition so we can become like him. Now that is really good news. If we believe that, it doesn't just turn us around. It turns everything upside down. Because then, through the forgiveness that is in the death of Jesus, God's infinite love is available to us, completely free 
no merit, no personal glory or accomplishment, nothing required. As Peter says, it's a gift. No way to buy it. Regardless of all our inability and careless for all of our own limited achievements, all that's needed is to recognize our need and turn and receive. I think we can never hear that enough. Paul again, writing to the Romans, in verse, chapter 5, verse 8, he says this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When our hearts and minds are changed to understand and receive that kind of gracious love, we also come to understand power and glory in a different way. God's power and glory is made perfectly visible in a king who puts all his greatness aside to die for the love of his people. It's made visible in a king who shows us what true human glory looks like. In a king who makes his power available to us to be changed, to be like him. It means we're made to participate in God's power and God's glory rather than compete for our own. We are created to be God-powered beings. A whole series on the Holy Spirit has been all about that. For God's glory and for our own good. Again, the Apostle Paul, he writes to the Colossians and he puts it this way. He speaks of Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. But he also, in 2 Corinthians 3, he writes, We all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. What does that look like? I think we get something of a picture. And I'm sorry, I'm giving you a lot of Paul. He's our great theologian. In Galatians, he talks about how God's Spirit gives us a new heart. Galatians 5, 22, famous verse, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Don't we long to be like that? Loved so that we're able to love consistently. and at peace with ourselves and with each other. But it answers another last question that came up for me. If in the first century the Samaritans needed signs that pointed them to the power and authority of Philip's message, 
Where are those signs today? What is the authentic sign that the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ is truly good news, is being realized in our world today? And the answer that I think comes to us through the story of Simon is far more down to earth, more practical, and more near to home and uncomfortable than we might expect. And it's simply this. The sign that Jesus is indeed good news is lives that have been supernaturally changed through repentance and faith in Jesus to reflect the goodness of the living God. Lives that have been supernaturally changed through repentance and faith in Jesus to reflect the goodness of the living God. We ourselves become the signs of God's power and glory in the world when we turn back to God and allow His Spirit to change us into the image of Jesus. One person, one repentance at a time. You thought I was done with questions. I'm never done with questions. Not for myself. But I have one, and it's really the last one question, and it's for you. Take this away with yourselves. If God's Holy Spirit is the one who equips us, and the one who convicts us, what's the one thing that the Spirit of God is convicting you to repent of today? To turn from? To turn to? To understand differently? For your good and to make you more of a sign of his glory in the world. Our destination is indeed glorious because we're being made into signs that reflect the glory of God. The king's glory becomes our glory. I want to end with the words of possible Paul again from Colossians 1.27. He says this. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you have a wonderful week. See you next time.